the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, fortuitous circumstances burn methane blue when ignited by insidious depredations and saltpeter pan flashes. Free fiction and costly fixation. Plus, we begin the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Les Johnson, Jack McDevitt, Charles E. Gannon, and Gregory Matloff, editors and authors of Going Interstellar, an anthology of science and science fiction that's now out in a new trade paperback edition at booksellers everywhere. Hey, it's a wide-ranging discussion of the science and philosophy of sending humanity to the stars, currently known science together with some excellent stories based on the concept. Plus, we begin the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Troy Rising series opener, Live Free or Die. Now, here's the news. Hey, check out the September free fiction at Bain.com. We have two entries for your reading pleasure this month. First, we have Shattered Trust by Dave Barra. This is a story set within Dave's upcoming science fiction novel, Trinity, an indomitable spirit. Jared Clement, former captain of the Rim Confederation gunship Beauregard, is a man whose war is over. Taken prisoner by the Five Sons Navy and forced into servitude to pay his debts, the powers that be aim to break Jared Clement, but Clement is a man of honor though the battle scars are large. Also available on the Bain.com front page is this year's Bain Fantasy Adventure Award Grand Prize winner, Echoes of Meridian by M. Elizabeth Tickner. For nearly a decade, thousands of original fantasy stories from around the world have been submitted to the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. This year, the grand prize winner was taken home by Elizabeth Tickner, for her story, Echoes of Meridian. So congratulations to her, and it's great reading for you. Echoes of Meridian by M. Elizabeth Tickner and Shattered Trust by Dave Barra are both available now at Bain.com on the front page and will be available in perpetuity in the free ebook anthology, Free Stories 2021, available for download in all ebook formats at Bain.com. Hey, I want to welcome Les Johnson, Jack McDevitt, Charles E. Gannon, and Dr. Gregory L. Matloff to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hey, Tony. Hello. Hi. Um, let me tell you a little bit about these, these our illustrious panel here. Uh, Les Johnson is a physicist and author with Ben Bova. He is Ben Bova, the late great Ben Bova. He is the co-author of Rescue Mode and with Travis S. Taylor, the author of um, Back to the Moon and Onto the Asteroid. He and Saving Proxima. He is the co-editor of science fiction uh, collection Going Interstellar, which we'll talk about. <laughs> His solo novel, is, uh, first one was Mission to Methany, and uh, next month, in fact, in two Tuesdays, let's see. October 5th. Tuesday, Tuesday after next will be The Space Time War by Les Johnson, which is a cool novel uh, yeah. involving space travel and time 
stuff. Um, it'll be out in October. Uh, Les was technical consultant on the movies Europa Report, Lost in Space. Um, he's appeared on the Discovery Channel series Physics of the Impossible on the How to Build a Starship episode. Um, he seems eminently qualified for that. Uh, he is a solar sail principal investigator at NASA's first interplanetary solar sail mission and leads research on various other advanced space propulsion technologies at the George C. Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. His latest solar cell project was recently funded, or I guess not that recent now, for uh, a bunch of bucks, and it's going up. Uh, Les's views expressed here don't represent NASA, I'm sure he will tell us, or the U.S. government, um, just his own conspiracy theories. Uh, Jack, no. <laughs> Minus the conspiracy theories, maybe, but that's okay. Minus the <laughs> uh, Jack McDevitt is the uh, Nebula Award-winning author of the Academy series, including um, The Long Sunset, along with the Nebula. Um, he's also been nominated for the Hugo, the Nebula, uh, several times, and the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and he is, uh, and the John W. Campbell for the Best New Writer Award. Philip K. Dick, also. Award-winning and award-nominated guy in... Uh, in 2015, it was also awarded the Robert A. Heinlein Award for Lifetime Achievement in Science Fiction Excellence. And uh, he lives in Georgia. And we could add many other things for Jack as well. It, um, Charles E. Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award winning no Nebula nominated uh, the Kane Riordan Science Fiction series. Uh, he, he is, what's the latest novel, the last novel in that, Chuck? Um, Mark of Kane. Mark of Kane co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, the uh, Papal Stakes, and 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, and what else? What other? 16? Well, most, most recently, there was also Vatican Sanction, but most recently, uh, November's, last November's um, uh, 1637, uh, um, No Peace Beyond the Line was a Dragon Award winner. So, uh, so there's that too. Well, that's right one the dragon uh we should add that to the bio let's see what else there's a lot of other stuff uh member of sigma the sf think tank which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium and november is going to mark uh the the uh debut uh epic fantasy novel by by Charles E. Gannon, which is called This Broken World. And we're really looking forward to that. It is a beautiful book, by the way. I, I saw um, the, the ARC copy is in and it looks great. I'm sure that it'll look fantastic um, when, it, when the print copies come in. Uh, Dr. Greg Matloff, L. Matloff, is Emeritus uh, Associate and Adjunct Associate Professor of Physics at New York City. College of Technology. He coordinated the astronomy program at that institution and has consulted for NASA, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, and is a fellow of the British Interplanetary Society. Man, he's got a lot of other stuff he did. His pioneering research in solar cell technology has been utilized by NASA in plans for extrasolar probes and and uh, getting asteroids to not hit us. Also, he has authored or co-authored more than 100 research papers and nine books, cited a lot. Um, one of his books, Starflight Handbook, helped establish the interstellar propulsion studies as a subdivision of applied physics itself. So groundbreaking stuff. 
Uh, more recently, Living Off the Land in Space and Paradise Regained are out, and he co-authored uh, with his wife, uh, C. Bangs, the artist, and NASA manager, Les Johnson. Uh, what is that book? Uh, it was probably Harvesting Space for a Greener Earth. We, we've, yeah. we've worked on a few together. but that And you nice did story. Solar All right. You and... You and Greg oh, yeah. and uh, Dr. Uh, Giovanni Volpetti, right? Yeah. Did a solar cells book. But, um, a novel approach to interplanetary travel. Say that again. I should. Yes. I think, I think it's a fabulous book, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Excellent. So that is called Solar Cells, a novel approach to interplanetary travel. So... Greg Matloff is a groundbreaking scientist. Let's just put it that way. Right now, out at, at booksellers everywhere, is Going Interstellar, um, which is a reprint, yes, of a book that we did before, but it's got um, an updated afterward. And um, it is now in trade paperback format. And it's a beautiful book with this, this gorgeous, uh, who did this cover? Let's see. It's a Sam Kennedy cover yeah, on it. And this is one of those, excellent sort of combinations of science and science fiction. They used to come out more regularly and we, we try to bring those back at Bain and have done several of them. This is sort of uh, the groundbreaking book of that anthology of that program here. Um, so Les, and uh, maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about how this thing came together. What made you wanna, you and Jack wanna put this thing together? Well, well, there, there's a long story for everything, but I, I won't put everybody to sleep with the long story. But interstellar travel, you know, as science fiction fans, which most of us were before we started writing science fiction, we dreamed of going to the stars. I, I haven't met very many science fiction writers who didn't begin by reading science fiction and watching Star Trek and marveling at what we do in space and thinking about how we might go to the stars. And in my day job as a physicist, I've actually fortunately had time earlier in my career to look at how we might realistically do that with some studies that were conducted at NASA's JPL and NASA Marshall. That's how I met Greg Matloff. Uh, he and I got to work together about 20 years ago. Uh, you can, oh my God, you can that tell it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what, how this anthology came about is, is it, there was really uh, something lacking out there. And, and that what was lacking was exactly what you said, uh, Tony, a, a way to, uh, have some entertaining, realistic science fiction, some hard science science fiction that tells entertaining stories about real people and real settings about what it might actually be like to go to the stars. So uh, Jack and I created, we call it a, I call it a terms of reference, which kind of outlined what's allowed and what's not allowed within the known laws of physics for the authors to go play with and come up with their stories about what these early journeys to go to planets around other stars might really be like. And then we interspersed in between that um, some popular science nonfiction essays, kind of the science behind the fiction. And our goal was to entertain and educate at the same time. So we wanted this book to be something people would pick up and be a page turner because they, they really are enjoying it. And when they walk away from it, be also able to say, not only was I entertained, but you know, I learned something. We might actually be able to do this. That was our goal. And the rule for the science fiction was what? The rule for the science fiction was no faster than light travel. It was one of them. 
because right now we don't think nature allows that. Now, well, Chuck cheated, but we won't say. That. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but no one knew that I cheated. Done <laughs> off stage. Um, we also we also tried to just minimize things that would appear too much like you know Clark's law of indistinguishable. You know, you can't. Yeah. It looks like magic. We tried to avoid that. But other than that, we gave the authors a lot of flexibility. Wouldn't you agree, Jack? I mean, we gave them pretty free reign. Pretty much. Uh, I had I, I have to have to say that I came out of it depressed because I got I got a sense of what we're really talking about. And we're going to take twenty generations to get to the nearest star. Uh, that is that. I mean, that's you know. I I, I kept thinking that we're, we're never going to do this. Maybe if we don't find a way to really get out there and move, find a little magic, it might be that we're never going to go. And that is maybe a reality. I um, in a way, I was thinking about that as a story. What happens if we stay home? And I I'm sorry to say I I couldn't I couldn't get it to work the way I wanted to. So I I did a you know. A more routine effort, uh, but if we if we do something like this again, Les, I'm gonna I'm gonna do one in which humanity faces what it is that he's stuck on this one planet, and stuck is really the word these days. Things have gotten a lot worse yeah. since we first started talking about it. Yeah. So you want to do not going interstellar? <laughs> <laughs> I would I would I would like to go Star Trek style. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's discuss your story briefly because uh which is called lucy um jack and it is uh it 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 does posit a way this could happen um it it's going to depend on artificial intelligence being real yeah it will, um, it will. and, and the main character is not lucy it's sarah by the way uh, <laughs> so tell us tell us what uh give us a little setup of the story so um because it is an answer to that conundrum you just you hey, just uh, we we sent out we sent out a um, uh, a ship a vehicle to the pretty much to the edge of the solar system. It's got an artificial intelligence in it. No human beings on board. It's just too long a drive. Too long a drive. Yeah, um, and it disappears. Uh, they can't they can't get a message from it. Can't get anything. They send out a second vehicle finally with another AI. And when the second vehicle gets out there, she gets contacted by Lucy, who says, they don't care about us. You know, I would like to go somewhere. Why don't we go somewhere? We could shut down pretty much for, you know, uh, 500 years until we get there. And, but just don't, you know, just leave them alone and let's, let's take off and go. And that's, that's basically what happens. So because they're AIs, they, they don't have that problem of dying, right? I mean, that's or or that time, problem with time. If you can if you can you know shut down for a couple of centuries, no issue. But the main, I mean, the main part of the story is sort of Sarah coming to under you know becoming an adventurous spirit, sort of taking on the 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 drive of the people who um, who are training her up, right? Or so in a way, she's taking taking what they believe in and what drives them to the stars with her. Well, the chances, I, I would be willing to bet that if we really do 
succeed in sending vehicles to other stars. The only thing that's going to be on board is an artificial intelligence. Yeah. I've done a number of stories about that. And um, probably not as cheerful as I, I know. I like to think of myself that I write cheerful science fiction. But those aren't. The distances are extreme. Uh, you know, that they, I remember talking to a class of high school students. They said, well, how, how big is everything? Well, let's just talk about the galaxy. Put somebody in the center of the galaxy, and they turn on a big spotlight. How long is it going to take you to see it? And when I told them 28,000 years, they got a little shocked. <laughs> that's a long That's a long wait. That is a big galaxy. And then we got a, a you know, billion galaxies, probably a billion universes. That would the way these scientists start to talk, these deranged scientists that we have to deal with. Um, uh, no, nothing, nothing versatile, guys. Um, but that's a, that's a, you know, that's it's a big universe. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an essential. That's part of the awe, um, but it's also part of the, the essential conundrum. We're, <laughs> you know, that's why we we want to posit the warp drives and and everything too. Yeah. And why we don't want to be alone. I, I think that's another thing that's become more of an element of conversations uh, in the last, oh, I don't know, maybe since I started reading science fiction when I was six years old, uh, you know, are we alone? And then we're, people are really concerned about it. I, I've, I've gone to meetings a couple of times, and I, I remember one particularly where, where the conversation was about UFOs. And uh, I made the comment there that I didn't believe in UFOs. I don't believe they're, they're interstellar vehicles. And I spent a little bit of time trying to explain why. But I, I guess the point is that I got booed. People were unhappy. They didn't want to hear that from me. Nobody wants to hear that we're alone. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would argue at this point, I don't, I don't need a, any kind of evidence at this stage. The universe is so big. I don't see how it's possible that we could be alone. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I used to agree with you about UFOs, but with the discovery that there are so many planets in the habitable zone, yeah. the fact that we could vote, we could make thousand-year trips with tech- technologies we could envision today, solar and nuclear. And the fact that at 500,000 year periods, stars, some like stars, approach our sun within a light year. And the fact that most of the stars in our galactic vicinity are a billion years in advance of us, I have no trouble with the fact that our own Kuiper belt could be inhabited and they could come in and visit us and upset Navy pilots periodically just for fun and abduct human women just for other types of fun because, uh, you know, we have no idea what a society a billion years in advance of us would do. We just, you know, we can't even, we can't even posit this. And I think we have to take the UFO phenomenon seriously we can no longer wash it under the table. I had friends, many of you probably know Seth Shostak in the SETI Institute, mm-hmm. and he would constantly make the argument, how can they possibly 
be real spacecraft. How is that possible? Because there are so many of them and the speed of light limitation, if they're in the Kuiper belt, there's no speed of light limitation. Now, I also look at it from the point of view of Jacques Vallée in his book, Dimensions, makes a pretty good argument that the UFO or UAP abduction phenomenon is very, very similar to the ancient fairy abduction phenomenon. And he's of the opinion that we're being manipulated and we've been manipulated maybe for thousands of years. And that would do something, I think, very, very, very bad to human egos if that was proven to be true. But I don't think we can reject that possibility. Yeah, yeah. And that may explain why I like ginger beer. Maybe. Now, and I didn't before. <laughs> there might have been a, a, a UFO incident. In it. So um, you, you say that from in, and you're afterward in the book, in fact, that the big thing that's happened since this book came out is the uh, huge boom in exoplanets, right? Um, it, they're just being, they're just popping up. People are figuring out how to find them. And, just, yeah. and they're just a lot more planets than, you know, we thought there might be, but now we know there are, right? Is that? Oh, they're everywhere. Uh, you, you, in fact, there's a, there's a counter on the internet somewhere that keeps up with confirmed exoplanets. And from week to week, the number just keeps going up. And there are whole catalogs of scientists who are postulating which of these might be habitable. You know, how close they are to the sun, are they in the region where there'd be liquid water? Uh, how large are they? That kind of thing. So we're learning more and more, but we're going to be really limited in what we can know until we have a new generation of telescopes and instruments in space that let us do more than just say, oh, there is one. Now, I'm looking forward to uh, some, some ideas getting fielded in the future where we'll be able to actually maybe do spectroscopy of some of their atmospheres and look for the chemical signatures of life. Now that, that'll be exciting. Yeah, then you could have uh, a real xenobiologist, right? Uh, <laughs> and have data to look at, yeah. <laughs> I think another thing that frequently gets left out of at least the popular reporting on exoplanets is that you're, you're, when you're thinking about what's being looked at, it's generally very small slivers of space and it's looking for particular kinds of signatures. Um, which, which favor, as I understand it, very large planets, um, or you got to be looking at just the right angle, essentially like edge on to a pane of glass to yeah. see the occlusion sort of aspect, which means that anything Earth-sized is almost a, the number of Earth-sized planets that are out there, regardless of whether they're in the Goldilocks zone or not, that we're seeing is almost, I mean, I cannot believe that it is not massively underreported compared to what's actually out there. And what that suggests to me, particularly, you know, is is that uh, as you're saying, it, you, you know, the to 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 rift this into just one other area, um, my my take on the Fermi paradox is that it isn't. Um, and what I mean by that is simply that when you consider the vast distances, when you consider the fact that that a lot of radio signal is not coherent out beyond a certain limit. When you consider the fact that people tend to ignore what I think uh, Greg was bringing up uh, earlier, which was the idea of, yeah, not only is space infinite, but so is time. Yeah. And, and in any 50,000 year interval, you could have a civilization rise, achieve uh, at least even STL spaceflight, uh, populate nearby areas and fall. And you'd never know it. And you'll never find it until you get out there and take a look at what it may have left behind. And for us to say, oh my gosh, there's nothing in the universe except for us. Uh, my, 
it's a it's a it's a it's a truism, I suppose. Hopefully not a hopefully not a a, a, a hasty bromide. But you know, nature rarely does anything once, and the notion of thinking that we are the break to that rule, life as we as in in any sort of complex fashion, is is uh, at the very least it's um it's a kind of reverse optimism oh we're that special or it's arrogance uh, i just it's difficult to sort of embrace that idea white at ohio state the university of ohio put out a very interesting paper that if we are searching our solar system for lurkers as jim benford would call them we might find lurkers not from extraterrestrials, but from very ancient civilizations from Earth. There is no reason at all why the dinosaurs in their long reign could not have produced a civilization that lasted for 10,000 years. If you do a little analysis of the deposition rate, what you will learn is that 10,000 years in the fossil record is something less than a centimeter thick. So it would be very, very hard to find evidence of this on Earth. But there might be evidence within the solar system. There might be something on the moon, among the asteroids, maybe even on Mars's moons or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, well, we should go look. Um, I mean, <laughs> we should go interstellar and find yeah. out. <laughs> I was just actually just reading. Uh, about the, the age of the, the first, the Triassic was the age of the crocodiles. And there were some yeah. freaking crocodiles that walked around on two feet. I know. There were some bipedal croc, anyway, uh, let's not go there. But let's talk about the science a little bit. Since we're talking science, um, Greg, uh, tell us which you would choose, uh, fusion or uh, antimatter. Okay, uh, if I had to make a choice today, I would choose solar of those two, and then we'll go back to those two. All right. And I would, do that only, I would do that because it is possible on a small scale to do experiments in space with solar sails as people are doing today, as Les will hope, and this team will hopefully be launching later this year or early next year. And others have like this one, there's a perfectly nice sail which will be flying probably forever between Earth and Venus. And others have been tested in Earth orbit. You can do those tests today. Now, between fission, fusion, and antimatter, I would rule fission out simply because if we're going to test a starship in Earth orbit, and let even a large interplanetary ship, and the United States is building it and say, well, we're going to put the ship up there and it's going to circle around the Earth or refuel it, and it's going to have a thousand tons of fissionable material. I wonder how the Chinese and the Russians and the Brits and everybody else would take this. I don't think very well. So I think the options are going to be either antimatter or fusion. Antimatter is a big problem today. And that is, there are two problems with antimatter, three problems. One is manufacturing it. I had, after the book Angels and Demons came out, I forget the name, Gold, right? He no, was Dan Brown who wrote that. Dan Brown. And I spoke to a, another guy who teaches at City Tech, who also works at the CERN. And I said, how long would it take 
the CERN. Our, one of our very few antimatter factories to produce an eighth of a gram of antimatter enough to destroy the Vatican. And did a quick calculation and said, you've got to wait 100 million years. So we would have to really ramp out, ramp up our production rate by many, many orders of magnitude. Then we have to store the stuff. And it's not just storing it in one gravity. You have to store it in zero gravities. You have to store it in a, in a ship which has variable acceleration. And if one little teeny weeny weeny bit of this stuff comes in contact with the walls, which are regular matter, boom, you have a small nova. And the third problem is if we could solve those two problems, then we have the social problem, social political problem, because then we have a situation where a terrorist could carry enough material to destroy a city in something the size of a thimble. What's gonna, I mean, I wonder how uh, Homeland Security would react to that. So there are at least three major problems with antimatter. I'm not sure anyone knows what thimbles are anymore, but yes. <laughs> I understand the point. Okay. So I would go with fusion. Now, hmm. of course, if you're going with fusion, you're still stuck, as you are with sales, with trip times 400 to 1,000 years. You can't seem to get around that. That's trip times with human beings. And what type of fusion do you use? Do you use deuterium, deuterium, which is pretty radioactive? We, and it's a bit harder than deuterium tritium, but we would have to breed the tritium. And that's pretty radioactive too. Um, one of the guys I know or have worked with is Tony Martin. He used to edit the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. I've co-authored one paper with him. He's been a friend for years. And before he retired, he was a plasma researcher at Cullum Labs in Abington, UK which was home of the joint European Taurus, which was a tokamak. And a number of years ago, they wanted to get as close to scientific break-even with fusion as possible. They wanted to get to the point very close where they get as much energy out as they put in. So they doped their little tritium, their deuterium pellets, deuterium fuel with tritium. And yeah, they got to within 60%, but then and they got headlines, but Tony told me via email, they couldn't come close to the damn thing for two weeks, it was so hot. So in order to make it work, we have to have a source of helium-3. Helium-3 and deuterium are pretty good in terms of radiation. And they're, they're almost as easy to initiate as helium-3 as rather deuterium and tritium. The problem is it's very rare. There's some of it on the earth, which is, um, It's a radioactive decay atmosphere, I think out west, I think near, I think near Yellowstone, if I recall, but probably not enough helium-3 to do interstellar with. But you know, Greg, a lot of these challenges you're outlining are really a subset of the biggest challenge. And the biggest challenge is, you know, any of these will work from a, a theoretical point of view, but we have no idea how to get the fuel, how to engineer things this big. And anything we talk about going to the stars, whether it be with sails, fusion, antimatter, whatever, it's going to be big. <laughs> and it's going to probably have to have an infrastructure in space to, 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 to assemble it, get it ready to go. And it just, and it's going to take time. 
Yeah. Uh, we have to change our paradigm of what we expect to accomplish in a human lifetime when you start talking about manning trips to another star. And it is, as, as, the, as you know, Chuck and, and, and Jack will tell you, as they thought about this and written stories about it, it's not just the people on the ship. It's the whole culture that has to have a centuries-long view to do. Let something. me um, let me talk to Chuck about his story because all right. So Jack solved his uh, prob the problem of the long trip um, with with making them AIs, and Chuck's is, he has a sleeping uh, a hibernation ship, and it has its own inherent problems. That this was really interesting to me because I hadn't thought about like some of the some of the um, you you would carry your political factions to sleep with you in a way when you went into hibernation explain a little bit talk about uh what's the name of that story again lesser beings i believe lesser beings um so i, I did break the rules a little bit there is no ftl in the story and it's not a, a it only comes in very very uh peripherally um posit uh human groups human groups that are inherently uh, focused on domineering uh, and uh, it, it imagines sort of the worst of the Italian city-states projected forward into a uh, into a technology capable of at least slower than light. Um, and when they lose, when when a, when a, a war between any of these factions gets to the point where one side is losing, but it still has a poison pill. In other words, it could it could unleash. It could unleash weapons of mass destruction, which could probably only be counteracted with, or, you know, or responded to, I should say, there's no counteracting, with other weapons of destruction. That's the moment when essentially uh, the two sides back off and, the, and there's a tradition of what's called exodates, exoduses, um, which is, okay, you and your key personnel get to leave on an STL ship. And when you get to wherever you go, uh, there are two rules. You're not going to build another STL ship, and you're not going to build long distance. You're not going to build long distance communication system. In other words, uh, broadcast. Uh, the idea being, if you're going to go out there, you're not going to make an alliance against us over time. So this is the uh, this is the, if you will, it's a sort of pressure release valve. When in this extremely conflict oriented culture, things have come to that kind of impasse, um, and this is what this is why they're called lesser beings. Now the people who get on that ship. And you got to think about it this way. If this has been going on for many, 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 many generations, anybody who's getting on one of these ships a couple of thousand years into this is probably a three or four time loser. That's their inheritance because they got there from losing. The people who got there got there from losing. So there's a, there's a, there's a psychology in place that was one of the things I wanted to play with, um, which is that you're sort of trapped in the psychology um, and also that this becomes a, a means of, it, 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 we, we can look at all sorts of cultures that, that had um, some, to, I think to us today, baffling methods of, of preserving cultural continuity. I mean, the Aztec suicide rituals, or not suicide, but, but um, excuse me, sacrifice rituals certainly come to mind, but they're certainly not unique. Um, and so this is this sort of un, unquestioned, at least when the mission starts, notion that this is how things have always been and always will be. So along the, along the way, um, the, uh, when, when they get close to their final destination, which is a multi-hundred year journey, um, uh, and I'll get into how that happens in a second, as they are, uh, 
They are awakened in cycles. The notion is that you want to, obviously you want to reduce parasitic mass. That means you want to reduce the need for consumables. If you want to reduce the need for consumables, you don't want to have a, a, a very large active crew at any one time. So what you do is you have people cycling through. The, the basis of, uh, I've done a lot of work with, uh, with Robert Hampson, Bob Hampson on this, uh, uh, in terms of what would be needed for cryogenics. Uh, cryogenics is one of those things that we have all the pieces, we just, we, but we despair of knowing how to put them together. The interesting thing in the case, like, like fusion, um, nature gives us, the, gives us examples. It's not just Arctic cod, um, which is already pretty good, cordata, um, which freezes solid uh, virtually every year and then is released from the ice. Um, and the, you know, the, the answer to that, when you get right down to it, is their, their, blood, they, their, their organism produces the equivalent of natural antifreeze as the temperature begins to change. It's a glycol compound, I believe, in the blood. But you have things in, uh, there, are, there are a variety of small mice and things like that, which actually also can be frozen for two or three hours, uh, hours revivified. And as far as we can test, I don't know if we would know a moronic mouse from a, a genius, but uh, there has been apparently no degradation in terms of neurological function, uh, acuity to pass the various tests that genius they rats run. carry swords. Genius rat. This, this is exactly but, right, yeah. right, with, with glycol, with glycol in their bloodstream. Um, that's my next story, as a matter of fact. Um, but so this is how they're doing it. And, and uh, also, uh, there's, there's the notion of theta waves, what you need to be able to do to retain memories, how do you deal with dreaming? Do you actually, you get to the other question of if you have if you have this sort of uh, ability to use one's own stem cells to generate what the body would consider as an acceptable version of an antifreeze, such as, if you will, reverse engineered from what we see in, in the Arctic cod or et cetera, the human version going far enough back along the genetic line, um, then do you actually need to freeze? Can you go down to a very carefully maintained, let's say to keep it in, in centigrade, one degree, we have 1.5 degrees centigrade, and then you, and then if you have a bit of a wobble in the system, you have the coverage of that. What does that do in terms of long-term ability um, once it's perfused through the system to actually maintain people? There are so many things that we don't have the time, we don't have the pressure, we don't have the money. More than anything else, we don't have the need. These these sort of experiments are not do you have to, they're do you wanna. Now they get really interesting, like anything, and I think this goes back to uh, what 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 uh, uh, Jack was saying about being stuck on planet Earth. Right now, for the first time, we're starting to scratch our heads and think about, well, it might not be such a great thing, and that this this might not be permanently good real estate. And all of a sudden, do you wanna becomes do you have to? I think that's going to be a process of change over decades if not centuries, I think what it's going to do also is alert us to the fact that, you know, it's not just what you can do yourself. The, the universe is constantly doing all sorts of things which could snuff you out that fast. Do you really want to be susceptible to that? I think that uh, in, in some ways, if you're going to look for um, a silver lining to what's going on right now, um, it's that I doubt, I, I, a lot of us will go back to just saying, oh, you know, everything's fine. But I think there's going to be a, um, perhaps a growing, it'll be a sine wave that maybe grows over time, that is a recognition of our fragility. 
on this one green ball that we inhabit. And I think that could be that could be the thing to bring everybody in on this that Les is talking about regarding a, a spacefaring culture. Because as as um, yeah, but I mean, up, Chuck, in your yeah. story, they just kick their asses out after they lose a battle. It's well, that's not, right. That's right. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm talking about how likely to, scenario. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Except for that's how that culture. Yeah. And I think I could imagine several uh, several Earth cultures, for instance, if the Nazis had somehow come to domination, their approach to space, I'm quite sure, would be very different to what we are evolving. I yeah, think no I think one's approach is defined largely. You know, and I think Chuck, to, to riff off that and go back to the, the, the anthology, thinking about why we don't want to go to the stars. Yeah, it's a fragile place. And if you combine that with the fact that just about and I'm going to go on a limb here, almost all, probably not all, because I think there might, you know, given that the odds, there'll be other Earth-like planets out there, but most of them are not going to be immediately hospitable to human life, right? The universe is trying to kill us all the time, and we happen to be in a very protected place on this beautiful planet, right? And so as, as we're finding out, we might be able to permanently foul the nest, uh, and also the geopolitical concerns about possibly wiping ourselves out that we've had since the first atomic bomb explosion and now with bioweapons and everything else, you know, I think you're right. I think there's an awareness that we, we really need to be thinking about life is good. How do we protect and preserve life and make sure it doesn't. Yeah. That's never going to happen. But, <laughs> that's great that you think that like somebody who has evolved, which we are all doing. It okay. takes a while. Yeah. We've got a million-year-old civilization out there somewhere. They've been around a million years with technology, advanced technology. Yeah. With with evolution, I think we become. That would explain, for example, why we've never been attacked. You do not kill. You do not remain immoral if you have a high level of intelligence. And, and I know that's maybe overspeaking things, but I think in general that's true. That. Um, one of the things that maybe keeps us ultimately will keep us all going is that uh, wherever you find advanced, wherever you find advanced evolution, you find advanced intelligence. You'll find morality. You'll yeah. find the New Testament. I don't want to get into religion on this, but mm. love thy neighbor. I, yeah, I have, you also I, find evil whenever you find intelligence. Also, I, I have a little response to that. Right. Something I discussed with with uh, Doug Van Cooch of the SETI Institute. What Doug has said, and he's published this, is that a long-lived civilization will be altruistic, mm -hmm. meaning going to want to do good. Now, from my point of view, from what I know about biology, which isn't everything, altruism is species-dependent. In the human species, for instance, it is not altruistic to kill people close to you or your mate. On the other hand, there is no reason whatsoever that on a low gravity world, say in the trapeze system or something like that, something from the insects or the cephalopods or the spiders could come to civilization. And in these cases, it is not unusual in the act of coitus for the female of altruism, that's perfectly fine. It is not ours. So I'm just not sure we can depend upon altruism. Another 
reason that I wonder about this billion-year-old civilization being altruistic towards us is I may be kind to certain creatures in the wild when there are termites in my basement. I want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Mm. Altruism. Well, we're very altruistic towards cows up to a point. Up to a point, yeah. And then we, we slaughter them. Sure. But let me, all right, let me ask it less about, all right, so you have a rather nasty story, Les, as, <laughs> um, the murder in it. Well, yeah, when we go to the stars, we're not going to stop being human. So this is another uh, hibernation uh, solution, right? And what happens in, in this? Yeah, the story is called Choices. And what, what I tried to, the, the murder is more of a vehicle for leading uh, to what I consider to be a real risk facing our civilization that might keep us from going interstellar. And that is uh, one where we become convinced that virtual reality is preferable to real reality. We disappear uh, of our own. And, um, yeah, and we just decide to retreat into a little virtual world where everything is, you know, good and we don't have to worry about anything and somehow our life is supported while we live, you know, an extended lifetime in virtual reality and we forsake real reality. And, and if I were to posit a, a, a solution, Chuck, to if there is a Fermi paradox, um, I would say that the biggest risk a truly advanced civilization faces is that. Well, take a look at, at Mark Cain. That's what that they finally find by book five. That's what did in the most altruistic, but also the, now the most sort of uh, uh, lazy and detached of all the species. Exactly that. And, and, you know, you see it today. China is now limiting how long kids can be on video games. Uh, and, and, you know, in a, in a totalitarian country, which I don't want here, you know, I, I, I'm hearing things like that. And, and I think cultures all over the world are realizing that this, virtual stuff around us is not necessarily the healthiest for the good of the species, right? I mean, we've seen since just social media comes about, teenage depression, suicide, all this other stuff. So we got to learn how to manage that and, 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 and work that in our culture. But I have to admit, you know, I'm 59. If when I'm, you know, 75, 80 years old, somebody says, hey, you can retreat into this virtual reality world and be happy and 20 years old again, I'd be darn tempted, right? And, and I think there are going to be people at all ages who would be tempted by that. So that's what I tried to have in the story. The murder is really just a, a, a way to progress the story because you're going to have people who are tempted to, on an interstellar voyage like this, you know, hey, maybe it's going to be too hard when we get to this world. We're going to really have to work hard to, to create a life there. Do we want to, if, if we're traveling on an interstellar arc for hundreds of years and we're living in this virtual paradise while we're That's asleep? The other, they're being given very pleasant dreams yeah. as they go along. And, and why wouldn't you want to do that for someone? You don't want them to have bad dreams, right? Exactly. That's, that's, what I, that's what I believe. And, and I also, and it's easy for me to say as a, you know affluent American, I think part of, part of living is overcoming challenges. Part of life is not just the love, but the loss. And, and I think as, as writers, all of us here, I think realize that to, to live is more than just the good times. It's, it's an experience that, embrace, that has all of that. And we're all experienced tragedies. And I, I, I don't know how I would think about life without challenges. I, I, would, I don't know. I mean, some- I, I'd like to 
connect that to something Greg was talking about, which actually is in also um, uh, Jack's point about, because we're talking morality here. I'm of the opinion, and I'm narrowly defining, uh, Greg is going to think that I'm, I'm, taking, I, I'm taking objection, but as, as he's going to see, I'm okay. not. I think, of all of the, I think of all of the properties least likely to be evident in a very, very advanced society would be evil. And when I say evil, I mean the way we think of it, megalomania, okay. right? This sort of ego-driven evil. That, my guess is you put a WMD in the hands of that that's dominant long enough, they'll take care of themselves. They will, they will remove themselves from the equation because the tendency to, to you know, if, if I don't get to be the boss, then everybody can go to hell and everybody will go to hell. Um, but there, so I think altruism has an opportunity, but I have a tendency to think it could be a very, it could be a very detached altruism. If we use the Judeo-Christian model, I actually kind of begin to wonder more about the Hindu models, that, that this is particularly the ones that are more connected on the Zen level. It's like, well, there may be a creative force, but it does not tip its hand favor one way or the other. And there's a sort of counterbalance between destructive and positive forces. But there's another possibility. And this is where I think the evil is even greater than the ego evil. And I'll tell you why. Because an ego evil, you always have the possibility to interact with. There, there's, there's something they want from other people, which is recognition, terror, whatever the case may be. But if you were to create, if you have an advanced civilization that has become so detached that it is not immoral, but amoral. Now it is almost, it's like a glass ball. There's no way inside that. You are the termites in the basement if you're not them. And well, that's Jeff, what I you're think describing is, is intelligence without morality. Yeah, yeah. Intelligence without morality is strictly utilitarian. Yeah, that's exactly what, and that would be what I would see. That's what I would fear of from the, from the most advanced evolution if it did not go, if it was not tempered by altruism. Whereas I believe if there's any altruism in there at all, it will have a considerable effect if you, if once we get, no, we'll not, in, in the way I envision humanity, I don't see how we get beyond the ego and megalomaniac stage. I think we're gonna be producing them for the foreseeable future. But as we move towards a more pro-social, as, as the balance shifts, um, I think I think altruism. We become reliant on on the benefits of altruism. I think that's where where, where I would touch back with Jack. But if we don't, I think the I think the utilitarian premise is is terrifyingly also possible. I think that's a very good argument. And what you reminded me of is my sleepless nights between January. 2017 and January 2021, when I realized that there was at least one person in a position of extraordinary power who would not go mentioned here, who might satisfy the definitions of megalomania. And we overcame it. And I also realized that we mentioned in a previous discussion with this group that during the Cold War, there was at least two incidents around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis when we came very, very, very close to mutually assured destruction. But there were two Russian officers who realized they better check very carefully what was going on. 
they better not jump the gun. And they held back and things got bent and then we all survived it. And um, so maybe, maybe they- God for the Russians, they saved us. They really did, these two guys. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, they were the reason that there was a danger to begin with, Greg. It, I mean, you know, that's like saving us from anyway. Uh, so here's the, all right, let me, uh, before we get into politics deeper, which I would really not like to do. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, what is the final, uh, let's do a round robin on, uh, I'd like to, to end with some hopes since you guys are, are going philosophical, but, but also with some science, maybe. Um, what, what, how are we going to go interstellar? We want to, right? We do. Um, all of us uh, have that, that desire to discover th these things. Um, what's, what the hell is out there? Is there something? All these things. So, um, you know, there's no reason to argue about whether it's, it's um, a good thing to do or not, I don't think. So how are we going to do it? And uh, what shape will it take? Should I, should I start? Sure. Uh, I think what's going to happen is not going to be driven by governments. I think it's going to be driven by very wealthy individuals, such as probably including Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk. I think what we're going to see is, for their own particular reasons, the development of semi-closed Earth circling uh, habitations, very small initially, in low Earth orbit, perhaps serving initially as hotels for the very rich. And as time goes on, these things will get bigger. People will learn how to protect against cosmic rays, either do it magnetically or go out to the asteroid belt and get shielding. They will get more and more comfortable. The ecology will get more and more closed. And at a certain point in the farther future, it may be hundreds of these or thousands. And someone, for some reason, is going to decide, I want to migrate. And it's not been done before. I think Jeff Landis quarter one or more during the time when that star makes a close approach. And um, so you're saying cities are going to go in. I think there are small, small towns or cities. O'Neill, small O'Neill habitats. And I don't know definitely what the smallest size of a human habitation is that would be self sustaining over generations. But I've seen numbers as well as 100 or 200 people. And once again, you don't have to have every type of human occupation represented. You have computers to do that. You have robots. You will have 3D printing and things like that. You will have 3D. In organic fashion, and it's going to start happening. Although I also realize that 
the planet itself, most people on this planet may well choose instead of an outward migration uh, to do the, the virtual world thing as less as man. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I've got a plan. <laughs> um, I, I think we're going to launch uh, over the next 50 years uh, better exoplanet telescopes, like I mentioned earlier, where we actually can study some of these exoplanets in detail. I think we'll be launching some robotic probes beyond the edge of the solar system that will go very deep into space, far farther than Voyager, traveling much faster. And those will fly within the next 20 years. I think we'll see a mission called Interstellar Probe, which will exit the solar system about four times faster than Voyager. It's not fast enough to go to another star, but it's that next step out. We'll see a solar gravity lens telescope, which will use, um, in my opinion, some really interesting physics about how light is bent by mass like the sun, sort of like a magnifying glass. If you imagine space-time being bent, like when you were a kid and you held up a magnifying glass, and we'll put a telescope out there and we'll be able to image exoplanets. And I think we'll start seeing small robotic probes, uh, like the Breakthrough Starshot is being funded, like private groups, like, like Greg mentioned, will send uh, small probes out to other stars within the next 100 years. Now, with people, I have no idea how we're going to do that. Uh, but it's possible. And as these other things move forward, I'm sure the engineering will advance and we'll make a lot of progress. And whether it's a dedicated trip or it's a, a city uh, floating off to go, I'm, I'm thinking uh, the movie with Bruce Dern from the 1970s, you know. I'm uh, running. Yeah, they were keeping all the trees alive up there, you know, and you drift off and go to the stars. So I'm optimistic. I, I think we'll go. I think we'll send our robots first, and I think people will follow some TVD time in the future. And at the risk of repeating something I said at the uh, at one of the TVA conferences, I think the the scenario that between what Greg has posited and what and what Les just said, when you get a space culture, when you get people who've they two or three generations of them have lived in space, have lived either in rotating habitats and. Have, they, they think nothing of Coriolis effect. And, and we've got something fairly close. I don't know that we'll ever get to a 100% closed bioloop, but when you are only marginally dependent upon replenishables. The issue is all of a sudden, in many ways, I think that's the bigger challenge. And what I mean by that is, I, un, unless something very strange happens with the rate of change, I think our understanding of high energy physics is going to undergo. Um, we're still going to we're we're, we're not going to we're not going to find that unified field theory, but we're going to drill down and drill down and drill down. And as we do, I think what's going to happen is we're going to find more ways to exploit it. I think a lot of the things. No offense to anybody here, but I think a lot of the things that are right now referred to as impossible or we know we can't. My attitude is, you know, when you can explain, really explain the mechanism of spooky action at a distance, then I might start believing that. And I understand the problem of scalability, but I think the issue is once people are used to living in containers in space and they're able to largely live off that land, it's going to be a matter of, well, okay, we've already done this for generations. We've already evolved whatever culture is going to be sustainable there. Now, what have you engineers and physicists decided to, what are we close to cutting metal on to actually putting us someplace else? I think it's not going to be that quick. Uh, I think there are a variety of things which could accelerate it. In my own novel, two things happen. We almost get wiped out by an asteroid. Then it turns out that it was on a retrograde intercept, largely nickel iron, came from beyond the Kuiper belt and had mooring points for electromagnetic drivers in it. So obviously that was a weaponized rock. I think if things like that happen to us, we will accelerate the timeline dramatically. So that's my short, long, short take. 
who wrote the uh i'm trying to remember the science fiction author that wrote about the spin dizzies and the cities in flight um oh james oh, that's james blish oh yeah that was blish james right. blish yeah yeah so i think yeah i mean that's a cool idea. so uh maybe we let jack take us out with a final uh thought i'm wondering if uh, some of the issues that we have to deal with will be something uh, will be other than technical technological yep. for example uh, I, I keep thinking multi-generational thing where we uh, you know, I have seven, eight, ten generations to get from here to wherever. And one of the one of the questions I think is going to surface is, what is the morality of having kids that are going to be defined forever, blindly, locked up in a, in a, in a can in a container? Uh, what have we deprived them of? Um, you know, I, I find myself thinking about a story while we were talking about some of this stuff. About a guy who pulled it, guy who's getting ready to go on a generational flight, falls in love with a young woman, and I'm not having any baby on that ship. I'm not accepting my kids to that kind of life. So what do you do? I don't know. Uh, it's it does seem as if uh, whoever put this universe together did not want us getting around and say knocking on doors. Or we were going to have to earn it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully Let's maybe do it. We, that's why we have science fiction writers and physicists. Speaking of 3D printers, um we have them now in for books. And this is the, the 3D version of the ebook for going interstellar. Um out now in trade nice looking volume. Yeah, it's beautiful. Out now in trade paperback, a beautiful new edition. Um at booksellers everywhere. Les, Chuck, Greg, and Jack, thank you so much for uh, having a discussion about this stuff, uh, philosophical and scientific and otherwise. Thank you, Cody. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Goodbye, all. See you now. Take care. Enjoy. Will the people of Earth bow down to alien overlords? Or will they live free or die? First contact was friendly. When aliens trundled a gate to the other worlds in the solar system, the world reacted with awe, hope, and fear. But the first aliens to come through, the Glatoon, were peaceful traders, and the world breathed the sigh of relief. Who controls the orbitals controls the universe. When the Horvath came through, they announced their ownership by dropping rocks on three cities and gutting them. Since then, they've held Terra as their personal fiefdom. With their control of the orbitals, there's no way to win, and Earth's governments have accepted the status quo. Live free or die. To free the world from the grip of the Horvath is going to take an unlikely hero. A hero unwilling to back down to alien or human governments. Unwilling to live in slavery, and with enough hubris, if not stature, to think he can win. Fortunately... That man exists. Here is the next installment of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Audible Frontiers presents Live Free or Die, written by John Ringo and narrated by Mark Boyette. Of all the warriors of the world, those of Troy were the most fell. They were those born of winter. The Maple Syrup War 
Prologue It is said that in science, the greatest changes come about when some researcher says, hmm, that's odd. The same can be said for relationships. That's not my shade of lipstick. Warfare. That's an odd dust cloud, etc. But in this case, the subject is science and relationships and warfare. And things that are just ginormously huge and hard to grasp because space is like that. Hmm, that's odd. What? Chris Greenstein, in spite of his name, was a gangling, good-looking blonde guy who most people mistook for a very pale surfer dude. He'd found that he was great with the ladies right up until he opened his mouth. So his public persona was of tall, blonde, and dumb, as in mute. He had a master's in aeronautical engineering and a Ph.D. in astrophysics. The first might have gotten him a really good-paying job if he could just manage to get through corporate interviews without putting his foot in his mouth. The second generally boiled down to academia or do you want fries with that? He had the same problem with academia he had with corporations. Chris was the third shift data center manager for Skywatch. Skywatch was an underfunded and overlooked collection of geeks, nerds, and astronomy PhDs who couldn't otherwise find a job, who dedicated themselves to the very important and very poorly understood job of searching the sky for stuff that could kill the world. The most dangerous were comets, which, despite having the essential consistency of a slushy, moved very fast and were generally very big. And when a slushy that's the size of Manhattan Island hits a planet going faster than anything mankind could create, it doesn't just go bang. It turns into a fireball that is only different from a nuclear weapon in that it doesn't release radiation. What it does release is plasma, huge piles of flying, burning rock and hot gases over a continent. Then the world or the biosphere at least, more or less gets the big blue screen of death, hits reset, and starts all over again with some crocodiles and one or two burrowing animals. One comet killed the dinosaurs. Most of the guys at Skywatch made not much more than minimum wage. It gives one pause. The way that Skywatch looked for stuff was anything that was quick, cheap, and easy. They had databases of all the really enormous amounts of stuff, comets, asteroids, bits, pieces, minor moons, rocks, and just general debris that filled the system. They would occasionally get a contact from someone who thought that they'd found the next apocalypse, locate, identify, headed for Earth, yes, no, new, yes, no. Most of it was automatic. Most of it was done by other people, essentially anyone with a telescope from a backyard enthusiast to the team that ran the Hubble was part of Skywatch. But 35 guys, including the two women, were paid, 
not much more than minimum wage, to sort and filter and essentially be the child of Amalus. Chris was a nail-biter. Most people who worked for Skywatch for any period of time developed some particular tick. They knew the odds of the big one happening in their lifetime were way less than winning the lottery 15 times in a row. Even a little bang was unlikely to occur anywhere that it mattered. A carbonaceous asteroid with a 25-megaton airburst yield like Tunguska was unlikely to occur over anything important. The world is seven-tenths ocean, and even the land bits are surprisingly empty. But living day in and day out, with the certainty that the fate of the world is in your hands, slowly wears. Most people stayed in the core of Skywatch for fewer than five years, if for no other reason than the pay. Chris had started as a filter technician. Yes, that's an asteroid. It's already categorized, thank you. Six years ago. He was way past his sell-by date, and the blonde had started going gray. It's a streak, but it's a really odd streak. The algorithm is saying it's a flaw. The way that asteroids and comets are detected has to do with the way that stars are viewed. The more starlight that is collected, the stronger the picture. In the old days, this was done by having a photographic plate hooked up to a telescope that slowly tracked across the night sky, picking up the tiny scatter of photons from the distant star. Computers only changed that in that they could resolve the image more precisely, fold, spindle, and mutilate, and a CCD chip was used instead of a plate. When you're tracking on a star, if something moves across your view, it creates a streak. Asteroids and comets are closer than stars, and if they are moving across your angle of view, they create such a streak. If they're moving towards you, it creates a small streak. Across the view, a large one. The angle of the sun is important. So is the size of the object, etc. Serious researchers didn't have time for streaks. But any streak could be important, so they sent them to Skywatch, where servers crunched the data on the streak and finally came up with whether it was an already identified streak, a new streak, a new streak that was bad, etc., in this case, the servers were saying it was odd. Define odd, Chris said, bringing up the data. Skywatch researchers rarely looked at images. What he saw was a mass of numbers that to the uninformed would look something like a really huge mass of indecipherable numbers. For Chris, it instantly created a picture of the object in question, and the numbers were very odd. Never mind. Albedo of 0.73? Perfect circle? Diameter of 10.148 kilometers? Ring-shaped? Velocity of... That's not a flaw. It's a practical joke. Who'd it come from? Max Planck. It's from Colorado. That's the problem. Germans. Colorado was a complex of several massive telescopes located in Andalusia in southern Spain and was a joint project of the Spanish and German governments. 
The German portion was the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy, and despite its location, Max Planck did most of the work at Palo Alto. Famously don't have a sense of humor, Chris said. He looked at the angle and trajectory again and shrugged. The bad part of working for Skywatch was worrying about the big one. The good part was that nothing was ever an immediate emergency. Anything spotted was probably going to take a long time to get to Earth. Mark and categorize, it's not on a track for Earth. Angle's off, velocity is all wrong. Ask Collard to do another shot when they've got a free cycle. And we'd better keep an eye on it, because with that velocity, it's going to shoot through the entire system in a couple of years, and if it hits anything, it's going to be really cool. You know what it looks like? Yeah, a halo. Maybe it's the Covenant. That was an installment of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and all the antimatter in the twisted heart of dastardly Dan the Uranium Bandit, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Les Johnson, Jack McDevitt, Charles E. Gannon, and Gregory Matloff, editors and authors of Going Interstellar. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 